Coming to you from the front lines of America's fight for freedom, it's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. What this world needs is a few more redheads. So people ain't afraid to take a stand. What this world needs is a little more respect for the Lord and the law and the working man. We could use a little peace and satisfaction. So good people up front take the lead. A little less talk and a little more action. And a few more rednecks is what we need. Welcome back to another session of America in View, where we are continuing our mission to wake the woke and strengthen Americans' conservatives. With truth, the Constitution, and a little redneck common sense, Matt, it's great to be back again with you today, although I feel like we have already spent way too much time together uh, this week. Uh, got an opportunity to be on the road together, up uh, going to the Tuscaloosa debate, where we saw lots of news unfolding. Let me just say this before we get into talking about the debate, which is one thing I want to spend the uh, great majority of our time talking about and peeling back some of the discussion in probably a way that no one else is doing on radio right now. But uh, lots of other news here as we get into the end of the week. Did you see where Hunter Biden was hit with nine additional IRS tax evasion uh, indictments last night? I I did hear something of that. It's kind of hard to keep up at this point. seems like every week there's something new. And, you know, the mainstream media is, is finally having to cover this, um, maybe reluctantly. It's uh, there's a lot of smoke and I guess, uh, you know, people think there's a lot of fire behind it, but it's it's uh, not something that we've probably had as much scrutiny as we should have. Yeah, it's hard to tell what's really going on right now, because I think that uh, if you're on the conservative side of the aisle and you're been and you've been watching this for quite some time, there's a presumption that the Bidens are guilty of something. It seems like a little bit of corruption, some payments, some foreign government payments that have been uh, sort of reallocated from Hunter and his uncle's accounts over to the Joe Biden personal account. Uh, But none of that has really been proven to be true yet, at least not in a court of law. This has all been assertions internally with investigations. Uh, So it's hard to know if the left is essentially having to move forward with something because they can't, with a straight face, move forward with nothing. Uh, At the same time, it's hard to know whether... Uh, tax evasion really is the appropriate charge here for what he's actually been doing and what the Biden family has been doing overall. Yeah, the left has very legalistic kinds of responses whenever whenever this story is aired. And it always comes down to, well, there's no formal link or clear link between um, then-Vice President Joe Biden and, and what his son was up to. But I think anybody that looks at the finances all the money moving around, all these different shell companies, the wires, the foreign governments, and then just this sort of flavor of behavior that we see out of Hunter Biden. It's just like you said, people are convinced they're guilty of something. They're not quite sure what it is, probably not unlike the left and and their attitude toward Trump. Like, hey, let's get this guy convicted for something. We're not quite sure what it's going to be. So it's a it's an unfortunate pattern in our country right now, which is um, this so-called weaponization of the um, of the criminal enforcement powers of the government. And here you have a situation with the Bidens, which it seems like, where is the 
where is the proportionate or where is the counterpart justice on these charges? I mean, eventually maybe we'll get there, but it has been a long time coming. Well, I thought that it was interesting to see that the corruption issue began to come up a bit more at this week's debate. These candidates are really working hard. They're in overdrive to try to uh, help us all understand a difference between the two of them or three of them that are uh, really what I would call the primary other than Trump candidates out there. And the corruption angle always ends up being something that people try to point out. Hey, I'm cleaner than you or I've been you know, more honest in my business dealings than you. And with all this other Hunter Biden, Joe Biden corruption stuff swirling, I thought it was interesting that Quite a bit of focus was put on the corruption issue with some of these candidates, both with Vivek Ramaswamy, with Chris Christie, and with Nikki Haley. Um, I think that Ron DeSantis uh, has, uh, of the four candidates, been relatively uninvolved in business, so it's a lot harder to point toward corruption with him. But nevertheless, they tried to put a little stink on him as well. So it'll be interesting to see if that continues to be a big central part of the back and forth with the presidential candidates, uh, certainly some of this Biden garbage will play into that. Yeah, and this ongoing uncertainty about whether the the most likely nominees, Trump and Biden, whether they are going to get caught up or, or stumble on one of these other issues along the way. I think most of the focus on Biden is just his age and whether, whether the Democratic Party is going to stand by him. Um, but yeah, this, these question marks, you have these uh, clear, clear kind of most obvious nominees with all the polling, yet there's all sorts of uh, potential scenarios that could play out. Well, I think that uh, <clears throat> my guess is is that Gavin Newsom has invested in uh, about 100 brand new silk suits and another case of hair gel as he gets ready to take the prime position, uh, thinking and dreaming, of course, that somehow this uh, new story is going to derail the Bidens, but we'll see. I still don't see it derailing Joe Biden from being the party's nominee, but I think there's many who are hoping, wishing, keeping their fingers crossed that they've got a shot for somebody else on that side of the the, uh, ticket. But anyway, Matt, uh, it was a fun week. We had an opportunity. Here we are. We're sitting here at about a month and seven days. We're in redneck talk. That's five weeks before the Iowa caucuses. In January, it's scheduled now to be on January the 15th, and this ostensibly was one of the last debates for the remaining four qualifying primary candidates, other than Trump, to get up and make their case that they are the best ones to lead the Republican Party forward. Um, It was interesting. It gave us a good opportunity being up there, as you know, to interact with some members of the other campaigns. Everyone's nervous right now. Um, It gave us an opportunity to sit there in the room with about 150 other members of the press to hear all of their back and forth. And I thought it was interesting. Many of the members of the National Press Corps are covering these debates kind of in an an obligatory manner right now. Didn't you find that to be the case? It seems that they just are thinking that this is a uh, foregone conclusion that Trump and Biden are going to be their party nominees. And so they are taking this what does it even matter kind of attitude. Yeah, it's interesting going to a, an event live. You always see a lot of things that you don't see on TV, and it, it adds to your understanding of what's going on. But a lot of times you don't actually see the event. It, 
as easily or with, with as much clarity as if you just sit at home and watch it on TV, right? So there were aspects of the event that were interesting. Um, the uh, I think the geographic scope of the coverage, uh, I think you were sitting next to somebody from Denmark, is that That's right? That's right, exactly. Yeah, so the, I mean, you got international press, right? Like they're they're following it, they're interested in it, they've got bureaus in the United States and they, they see it um, as being – super relevant for the world. But yeah, you're right. I mean, do they think one of these um, candidates is going to be the nominee or is it Trump is a foregone conclusion and this is almost like a dress rehearsal or a forecast for the future, candidacy for vice president, all those kinds of things. I'm interested. Who do you think won the debate, Matt? I don't have a strong opinion. I I think that, uh, I think that if you, so I think a lot of people we know don't like Chris Christie, but if you're Chris Christie and you're like, I want to remind everybody that I'm the anti-Trump guy and that I have some ideas that are different from the other Republican um, candidates up here, you you could say he had a pretty good night. He definitely ran in a lane that the other three were piling on um, on him for. I think DeSantis did well. I think Haley did better in the beginning and then had some weaker moments and, and almost appeared to be in management mode, like let's not – um, let's not mess up a good thing after she's been getting some new endorsements and some new donors. And then, you know, Ramaswamy to me, he's really run out his, uh, run out his welcome. I think everybody's pretty convinced he's just a loud mouth, obnoxious kid. And, you know, they're kind of over it at this point. Yeah. Let me say this. I think that, uh, I would, agree with some of your analysis. I think actually Chris Christie had a horrific night between his uh, constant assaults on Donald Trump and then also defending uh, transgender surgery or uh, surgeries for minors, uh, he pretty much disqualified himself from being a Republican candidate, actually just being a candidate overall. So I think he really tanked. I still think the big winner of the night was Donald Trump. But the reason for that is because Donald Trump's style and his presence continues to overshadow the debate. And I think that he's forced these other candidates into a mode of debate that doesn't help them. And we're going to unwind some of these clips in the remaining segments and talk about what these candidates need to do to really differentiate themselves. So stay tuned with us as we get into the second segment. We're going to be talking about what one of these candidates has to do to be the best candidate ahead of Donald Trump. Don't go anywhere. America in View will be right back. Making common sense cool again. It's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. All right, we're back for segment two of today's show. And Matt and I had an opportunity to be at the Republican debate in Tuscaloosa on Wednesday night of this week. And we're now just trying to peel back some of the statements that were made and talk about this effort by these four candidates to um, differentiate themselves and make themselves into the new leader of the Republican Party. Uh, it's still, Chris Christie, Matt, I think said it best when he said, hey, we think this debate's about the four of us, but really it's about the four of us trying to determine who's going to be the party leader as opposed to Trump. And he was right in that analysis. I think other than that, other than that, he had a fairly bad night. 
uh, I would say he's he's pretty much DOA at this point moving forward based on some of his statements about transgenderism. And yeah, also, but do you? I, I understand that you're saying he's DOA, but do you think he was that? That was his deliberate plan, was to be different from the other three. Well, he was different, all right, but I think he was so different and out of character for the Republican Party, he might as well not even show up in the next debate. But, you know, hey, maybe this is like the New Hampshire play. Yeah, that's my only, That's my only. Uh, I guess, caveat on what you're saying is I, I see it as a deliberate attempt to be the um, – the you know a differentiated option for any of those people out there that maybe they're wanting to vote Republican because they care about pocketbook issues and and that sort of thing, but they're social liberals um, like the New York strongman, former prosecutor profile of Chris Christie and all that all those kinds of things. The only thing I thought was ironic about the night was that I thought that Chris Christie's strongest moment was when he said <laughs> to Vivek Ramaswamy. That you're the uh, you've been voted as the uh, what was it the, the biggest blowhard in America or something like yeah. that. Yeah, and there was a there was a palpable sound from the audience across the board where people were cheering because we've talked about it before on this show that Ramaswamy tends to be an irritant, uh, a know it all, an irritant, etc. Um, but I thought the thing that's kind of interesting about that is that Chris Christie talks all the time about how we don't need. Uh, another Donald Trump leading the party who's going to be insulting people and demeaning people, but yet his biggest moment of the night was insulting and demeaning Ramaswamy. Yeah, like right out of the Trump playbook, right? Exactly. I mean, one of the things is that's interesting about being there present, You we we split up for a little bit. You were um, in the media center during a lot of that, and I went a few blocks away to where the News Nation um, decision desk was set up, which was basically like their – analyzers and during the debate itself um they they uh stood down from the stage and they had like barbecue and tents and they were they were um you know just having some downtime but the producers all the production staff were watching the debate inside their little tent and the ramaswamy christie i mean it's like you were watching a prize fight or something they were reacting with cheers and um you know definitely charged up just by the drama of it the personal drama of it all and I think that plays out. There's probably similar reactions going on in living rooms all across America as, as those kinds of things are happening. But your ultimate point is like, yeah, we're he's he's saying he's not Trump, but he's using all the same tactics. Well, I don't want to mention any names, but uh, you know, inside the um, press filing room, which is where these you know 100 to 150 uh, national and international reporters are all sitting, there were some well-known faces from other more liberal networks and they're constantly ripping on trump uh they're constantly ripping on the negativity inside the republican party but they were all laughing and slapping each other on the back when chris christie is like ripping into everyone else so oh yeah a lot of hypocrisy i'm not going to name any names but just understand that there's a big difference and i'm sure most of our audience knows this but there's a big difference between the personalities of these guys and gals in private as opposed to what they're trying to project on the screen. Yeah, and it's a show, right? I mean, we've said that before. I, I heard an interview with Megyn Kelly the next day, and she was talking about she was getting some praise for a well-done performance on their part. It was better than her first one. Well, and she used the phrase like making good TV. I forget exactly what she said, but basically the production value of putting on something like this. It's something people want to watch and – um they want to see a show. They want to see some punches landed, and they want to see how people react. 
it's kind of like people going to a NASCAR race. Everyone knows they're there for two things. One is to see the finish, and the second is to see the wrecks. Sure. Um, so, Matt, let's get back to talking about the actual substance of the debate. Uh, again, going back to what we said in the first segment, I'm not sure that there was a clear winner here, although let's just rate these guys and gals. If I had to walk away and say who was the clear winner in that debate, minus Donald Trump, not even considering him, I would say that the big winner of the night was Ron DeSantis. I thought he was actually his best debate. He was more settled down. And I thought he landed some body blows on Nikki Haley, who's pretty much his primary uh, competition right now for the other Trump vote. I agree. To me, the the clear loser was Ramaswamy, just because I think his personality has run out of gas, like I was saying before. Um, Christie as well. To, to the points that you made, although I just think that was more of a deliberate play on his part. But I think DeSantis did very well. I think he always turns in a really solid performance. There may be a sentence or two here or there that, that he may stumble over. Maybe you wish he had said a little bit differently. But I think he's he's always um, he's always very articulate. He's very in command of the facts and the and the issues. You can tell his educational pedigree matches his abilities. And I think Haley. It's interesting. Haley actually kind of lost some of her foils with some of the other candidates not being on stage. I mean, she had really gotten into it with Ramaswamy and with um, Tim Scott and some of the others in the past. So it's like she has fewer people to fight with. And I think she was just trying to hold it together. It was like a a prevent defense. Mm -hmm. And as we know, a lot of times when you start trying to avoid some sort of uh, catastrophic moment you actually get tight and uh, she she was just not on her a game especially in the second half yeah she got quiet i also think she didn't want to um jump in too much on hammering christy because i think that uh, she appreciated christy defending her at points along the way we'll talk about that more in the last segment matt about what maybe haley was trying to do there but uh, in the meantime i want to get back to talking about maybe some of the things that weren't discussed in the debate or maybe some frustrations I had with it. Look, in 2016, when Trump came to the show uh, of presidential debates, he turned it into a bit of a an entertainment-driven style debate where you're trying to body blow people with comments, with insults. and Nicknames. Uh, yes, nicknames, all that stuff. And it moved away from this sort of substantive idea that that started I think with the Kennedy Nixon debates and has moved forward by tradition over time and uh, you know there's always been zingers here along the way I mean certainly Reagan in a very kind way had his zingers with Mondale that people remember and uh, there were zingers between Bush and McCain in those primary debates Uh, but I think that the tone of the debates now these guys come in here with these sort of poll tested um, focus group tested uh, sound bites that they feel like they have to deliver, particularly as they talk to other candidates as a way of uh, making themselves look stronger. And that's all part of the show of debates. But you're never going to outdo Trump. Yep. And, and I, th- I think that what these people are failing to do by not having more substantive answers is that they are actually falling into the trap of still being less than Trump, but offering no compelling alternative to Trump. And so ultimately you end with these points where you say, yeah, Ron DeSantis had a great night, but who won? At the end of the day, I'm not sure Trump lost anything by the debate on Wednesday night and and didn't certainly lose anything by not being there. So I'm interested in your thoughts on that, Matt. I mean, maybe we're way off. I want to play a few clips, a few cuts to illustrate what I mean, because when it came to discussing 
some substantive issues and giving them a chance to offer some substantive solutions, I thought many of them kind of whiffed. I agree. I was just thinking when you were talking about some of the previous candidates, you remember Lloyd Benson in the vice presidential debate with brutal, uh, brutal. Yeah. Well, but he said, um, that Dan Quayle, he's like, you're no JFK. Uh That was at the time considered this really insulting thing to say. I mean, can you imagine just comparing that to what goes on in, in these kind of Trump era debates? Yeah. I mean, basically Ramaswamy called Chris Christie fat. Yeah, I mean, and they're they're all just going after each other ruthlessly. Um, I, you know, I think it's part of the the flavor of the day. Uh, just the, I think social media encourages people to have these like barbs that you know you you make your point, you make your joke. There's um, a lot of mocking and and making fun of people that goes along, and I think it's just in our presidential debate too. After one of the particularly loud exchanges between. Uh, DeSantis and Christie, where they were talking over each other. This was after Ramaswamy and Haley and Christie had all been talking and yelling over each other. I got a text from a former chairman of the Alabama GOP, who shall remain unnamed, who said, I can't believe any of these candidates are on this stage and none of them deserve to be president. This is a guy who's been in the trenches on the front lines, fighting hard for 30 years and has actually held public office. And um, anyway, it is it is a sad state, but uh, in the we're we're already out of time in the second segment, Matt. I think let's go ahead and start cutting or, or reviewing some of these cuts in the third segment. You guys stay tuned. We're going to talk about some of the substantive questions and whether these candidates lost an opportunity. Stay tuned. Bringing you right to the front line of liberal insanity. Watch out for that first step. It's a doozy. <laughs> and back again. America in view. We'll be right back. Where men are men and their ladies just want to love them. It's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. All right, we're back for segment three, unwinding some of the rhetoric and some of the answers in Wednesday's Tuscaloosa Republican debate. Matt, we've kind of talked through some of the stylistic, um, what I would call, forecasts for some of these debates that were set by Trump back in 2016. But I want to talk about some of the specific missed opportunities, I think, because of this sort of new uh, jab type uh, format that people have sort of uh, developed for themselves as in these debates, but missed opportunities to be substantive. And, um, you know, a lot of these opportunities were missed, I think, on foreign policy and then on opportunities to maybe talk about real solutions for the American economy. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, we had several sessions. We actually did almost two back-to-back sessions on the latest uh, attacks uh, against Israel from Hamas. That, of course, included American citizens. And there's debates now about whether we should be sending American troops abroad, whether we should be engaged, what we should do, whether we should be isolationist, interventionist, etc. And there's a lot of chest pounding, a lot of rhetoric, a lot of rhetorical responses. We need to kill them. Other people say we need to kill them more. Other people say we need to kill them with, you know, the, and they use, you know, kind of use this like worse case scenario language uh, and try to show themselves to be tougher just by using stronger language. But I still don't hear a lot of uh, definite answers. Now, Chris Christie kind of needled 
DeSantis for not answering questions about whether we should send troops to Israel or not. And in DeSantis' defense, I thought his answer was pretty good, but it was it was definitely more rhetorical and less substantive. So I want to play clips one and two. So, uh, Matt, if you can, let's play clip one, and then we'll jump and, and unwind this thing. This administration is trying to hobble Israel from being able to defend itself. They have a right to eliminate Hamas and win a total and complete victory so that they never have to deal with this again. Hamas wants nothing less than a second Holocaust. They would wipe off every single Jew off the map. They would destroy the state of Israel if we could. Joe Biden will say they support Israel, and then they do nothing but try to kneecap them every step of the way. You should not try to direct their war effort. We should work together okay, with them. Okay, let's jump so into this and, and talk about this for a moment, Matt. So the, the question... And I wanted our audience to sort of hear that that intro by uh, DeSantis. The question was whether we should be sending American troops in to the Gaza Strip, whether we should to rescue our hostages, if there are any American hostages out there left, uh, or whether we should be sending direct military assistance to Israel in the form of naval uh, strikes, airstrikes, etc. And DeSantis did what I think many of these other leaders are doing right now, which is to talk about how evil Hamas is to talk about the fact that Israel needs to be unfettered in their ability to defend themselves, but didn't really get an answer to the question about whether we should actually send troops and what the appropriate American military's response should be in these cases. I feel like there's this hangover effect from the Vietnam War, uh, which it, it just became almost taboo to say that American troops should go overseas. And a lot of these political figures would always avoid saying that. Now, of course, we, we've had some overseas conflicts since then. Some of them have gone very well. Some of them have been protracted and did not end as well. So I, I that's my read on it is this tentativeness and just wanting to say, hey, I'm strong on these foreign policy issues, but we're going to stop short of giving anybody heartburn that their sons or daughters are going overseas. Well, I think I think that's true. I think there's also a big element inside the Republican base right now that has adopted more isolationist isolationist approach. Many of these people are fans of Donald Trump. I think Ron DeSantis is trying to peel apart or peel away some of those supporters, and he doesn't want to look like he's trying to be too interventionist anywhere. With that being said, he did come back around and say, "Look, when you have Americans that are, you know, we we need to let foreign regimes know that if Americans are targeted, especially American servicemen." There's going to be a consequence, but he never quite says what the consequence should be. Yeah. Uh, now, Nikki Haley sort of does the same thing uh, in her response uh, about dealing with Iran uh, by saying that we need to hit Iran, but she never quite says what the hit needs to be. So let's play cut two, and I'll illustrate that. I dealt with Iran every day when I was at the United Nations, and they only respond to strength. What they don't respond to is when you weaken the sanctions like they did on Iran that allowed China to send them billions to fill their proxies. What they don't respond to is when you give $6 billion for five hostages. That only makes them want more hostages. What they don't respond to is when they do 140 strikes on our men and women in Syria and Iraq, and we do nothing but just some small shots back. You've got to punch them, you've got to punch them hard, and let them know that. That's the only way they're going to respond. So the way you do that is you go after their infrastructure in Syria and Iraq where they're hitting going to stop right there for a moment because again you get this we need to type response punch them and punch them hard what what more do you need (laughs) 
you get the picture of Nikki Haley actually punching, uh, you know, the Ayatollah. Uh, I, you know, it's again. And then she says, did you listen to the clip at the very end, Matt? She says, we need to hit their infrastructure in Syria and uh, Jordan. But the reality, what does that mean? No one knows exactly what that means. Now, look, I'm, I want to just take privilege here. I'm not running for president. And uh, I know that I have the luxury of just saying big things that don't necessarily need to be backed up. But I do think there's a case where you can say to the leadership of Iran, look, we have a carrier fleet. We actually have two now in the Mediterranean. And we were going to level every government building in Tehran if, A, hostages aren't released within this time period. B, if you don't stop funding uh, your uh, terrorists uh, in uh, Yemen as well as in Gaza. And uh, if you don't stop assisting the Russians. And we're not going to invade. And we're not going to do uh, you know, any kind of what I would call uh, mobilization of ground forces. But we have superior air uh, forces. And you're going to pay a price. And once you're all dead, if, you're, if your country decides to uh, reestablish a new government and you rebuild those government buildings and you continue to do this, we're going to do it again. And uh, just send a signal to these guys that, hey, uh, your life is over if you don't take action to rein your people in. Now, I'm not saying that's the best solution. I'm just saying it's a solution. But it, you see the difference here is that there's something with a definite edge to it as opposed to just saying we need to hit them and hit them hard. Everyone knows we need to hit them hard. What does that mean? Political leaders remind me a little bit of your doctor when you talk to them. They always seem like they're hedging because they don't really want to tell you something that then they're going to be held accountable for. Yeah, very true. And I, I think that's a similar thing here. That there's rhetoric that they know they need to get across, but in terms of actually laying down a definitive list of consequences, which I think is what you're saying. Um, yeah, you, you don't get that almost ever. And ultimately, it would be a president, an actual sitting president, um, issuing these kinds of ultimatums. We certainly have not seen that with the current president. And, you know, I don't know if maybe some of these candidates would be more specific if they were actually holding the office. Uh, I don't know. But here's my point. Okay, if you want someone to give another country an ultimatum, who would you rather have giving the ultimatum, Donald Trump or Nikki Haley, right? So my point is to say is that if all you're going to do is have someone walk in the room and say, we need to punch him and punch him hard, Donald Trump's presence and his bearing is going to give you stylistically a stronger sense of confidence about that than Nikki Haley. So she better come up with something specific if she wants to uh, position herself as being the better leader than Donald Trump. And that's where I think that these – Answers that are high on rhetoric and low on substance don't help these candidates. Let's move to some different type topics, Matt, which is, uh, again, more of a foreign policy issue. But the back and forth that Nikki Haley and DeSantis had on China. Now, I thought DeSantis scored some points here in this back and forth, but again, perhaps missed some opportunities to lay out some specifics on how they would deal with China. So let's hit cut three. But look at where fentanyl came from. Let's go to the heart of the matter. It came from China. That's why we need to end all normal trade relations with China until they stop murdering Americans with fentanyl. I promise you, they need our economy. They will immediately stop that. But this is where Trump went wrong. Trump was good on trade, but that's all he was with China. 
because here he allowed fentanyl to continue to come over. He continued to allow them to take, he would give them technology that would build up their military and hurt us. He allowed the Chinese infiltration okay, stop for right them there. to buy up farmland. So she moves from sort of uh, uh, this answer on stopping the flow of fentanyl at the southern border to attacking Trump on his Chinese policies again, which, by the way, no one believes that Ch- that Trump is weak on anything. So this is kind of uh, a single weak, weak attack. Um, and then she goes to hitting China on fentanyl. Here's the issue. The issue is that China makes most of the fentanyl that we use for legitimate pharmaceutical purposes. And so she's using rhetoric here, but it's not going to sound any different from anything else. Now, in the midst of this, she turns kind of an attack uh, that that uh, DeSantis launches on her into an attack on DeSantis. We're going to see who comes out on the better side of this thing as we get into segment four. But let's keep this conversation going about places where these candidates could have been more substantive. They're 10 pounds of common sense in a five-pound bag. Matt and Brent will be right back. from their liberal chains. It's Matt and Brent Oster with America in View. Okay, we are back for segment four. We're just finishing talking about some of these cuts from the debate, Matt, and where the um, non-Trump candidates may be losing opportunities to be more substantive and thus set themselves apart as the leader of the new Republican generation. Now, we talked about this uh, attack that Nikki Haley launched on China at the end of the last segment, and actually she launched it on Trump about China, but uh, she also uh, sort of took some incoming from DeSantis on this issue, so let's go to cut four. This this is rich, because when she was governor of South Carolina, she was the number one ranked governor of bringing the CCP into her state. She wrote a love letter to the Chinese ambassador saying how great a friend China is. You can look at it. We put it on our website, rondesantis.com. There's also a video of her as governor standing in front of a Chinese flag with a Chinese business saying that she now works for them, talking about this Chinese company. Okay, let's stop right there. So DeSantis uses this as an opportunity with her attacking Trump to turn the tables and attack Haley for being too China-friendly. Now let's see what Haley does in cut five. She turns it back on DeSantis. First of all, he's mad because those Wall Street donors used to support him and now they support me. The second thing is he has a company, a Chinese company, UGAS, that he just did a rally there last year. They have given you 340000 in campaign it's donations an company. between them and their employees. They are tied to an the American Communist company. Chinese Thank Party. Jinko Solar is another yeah. one. They went and expanded. You gave $2 million in subsidies. I banned China took, from buying land in the state of and Florida. The Department of okay, let's stop right there. Let's stop right there. So actually, I think DeSantis got the better uh, of Haley in this exchange. But again, Matt, you see this like back and forth here on China and whether we should be doing business with China. And still, again, they're sort of comparing and contrasting each other's records. Okay, every state governor in the country at some point over the last 20 years has had some interaction with trading partners that have been doing business in China, right? But they're, they're trying to really demonize each other here. I do think that DeSantis got the better part of her here because he had that one remark I banned the sale of land in Florida to China to the Communist Chinese Party, and that was very good. 
But ultimately, neither one of them are offering up much rhetoric about how to actually deal with China from the White House's perspective. This uh, this whole China thing, it's gone through some phases through the last few decades. I mean, you know, Nixon had this big moment where they decided to recognize Red China, and that was supposed to be a smart diplomatic move because it split the communist world and all this sort of thing. You know, for a long time, you think back 15, 20 years ago, everybody was like, oh, your kids need to learn Mandarin. You know, it's just stop learning Spanish. You need to learn how to trade with the Chinese. Like, that's the wave of the future. Yep. There's a lot of buyer's remorse going on, right? So we, we realize China's government and their, their communist ideology hasn't changed, even though they're profiting off of their trade relationship with us. And I think that was something that Trump really, to his credit, uh, began to, to harp on. Um, and now we have new attitudes in these debates where people, they all want to see like, well, who's the strongest against China? I interpret some of these actions that Nikki Haley took as governor to be predating the time when all the, all the Republicans knew, oh, no, no, you're supposed to be anti-China. She was still operating in a phase when it was all about economic development, building relationships with Chinese commerce. And so, yeah, now she's paying the price for it. And you can tell these campaigns, they both have their research teams going through and trying to figure out how they can make the other guy look as bad as they can. 100%. And it, but again, not offering a lot of vision casting for what our new relationship with China needs to be. I can actually argue that a lot of this garbage was created by, just as you mentioned, American foreign policy and American presidents in the past. We need to take responsibility for that and unwind the clock. I want to go. So this China conversation continued with a question to DeSantis about whether he would defend Taiwan. Let's go to cut six. We will be able to deter that from happening. I think that's the important thing. We need a strategy of denial so that we're deterring Xi's ambitions. What if it doesn't he work? Want, it's going to work. Taiwan's an ally. We have longstanding American policy. And, and, and you know yeah, let's, how Let's stop done. right there. Now, now, Chris Christie attacks DeSantis for not answering the question. Actually, I think it's a somewhat fair response. Again, it goes back to your point. We don't want to say that we're going to war, right? However, DeSantis didn't respond as to whether we would defend Taiwan directly, and he, he just said, well, it'll work. I'll deter it, right? Again, big promises. But look, Trump says the same thing. I'll end the war in Ukraine in 24 hours, right? There's no substantive difference in that response and what we're getting from Trump which is a lot of platitudes. Again, if both characters are going to be full of platitudes and no substance, I'm just going to go with Trump because he's the king of platitudes and he's the king of style and, and rhetorical bravado. So again, just no big difference maker here against Donald Trump. And I think Christie said he would send troops, and I think he also used the ally terminology. Yes. Which I think these terms get thrown around pretty loosely Technically speaking, the United States is not an ally with Taiwan and has not been since Nixon and Kissinger recognized um, Red China back in the 70s. You know, in the U.N., Taiwan used to be China in the U.N. until the early 70s, and then they threw them out and said, no, we're going to have Red China is going to be uh, have the seat on the Security Council, which used to be held by Taiwan and so on. If you actually look up who are Taiwan's official allies? It's like a list of three or four really fl- – like the Vatican City is one of them and some country you've never heard of from Africa. <laughs> right. There's there's virtually no one that recognizes China diplomatically. Now, of course, I think what they were trying to say is implied or sort of like behind the curtain, we all know that we're 
allied in an unofficial way with Taiwan, that they share our values and that we're a lot more interested in defending them. But, you know, I kind of wonder if like a Chris Christie even knows that. It, it almost seems like the language just gets thrown around for the moment. So Vivek also said that he would use troops and the Navy to defend Taiwan, although he didn't say specifically how. I want to end this with a final cut, cut eight, where Haley uh, responds, but she responds in a similar way to Vivek does on building these alliances with other foreign countries as a way of waging economic war and uh, military deterrence against China. Let's go to cut eight. I mean, when it comes to China and Taiwan, the one way that we keep China from going into Taiwan is, one, make sure that we win in Ukraine, that we protect our friends, but also let China know that there'll be hell to pay if they go into Taiwan. They need to know that there is going to be a force that's going to go against them. And they need to know it's not just going to be the United States. That is why we need to build our partnerships with India, now with South Korea, with Japan, with the Philippines, with Australia. We need to start pulling that alliance together. And the first way we do that is we need to make sure that on day one, we look at the fact Whatever, if China pulled the rug out from under us tomorrow, would we be ready? Think about what happened during COVID. Everybody told you to wear a mask. They were made in China. Everybody told you to take a COVID test. They were made in China. Everybody went and, I mean, everything that happened, if you go to the drugstore, all those medicines are made in China. We have to make sure that we are not relying on China for anything related to okay, our national security. Okay, we can stop security, right there. So two things. One is the whole reason why we have a relationship with China like we have today was because of this same strategy. We didn't feel like we could take on the Russians directly militarily, so we wanted to be friends with China as a deterrent. Now what Nikki Haley is, is uh, saying is that, well, we need to have all these relationships with the Philippines and with Australia. Well, we already have those relationships as a way to deter China. But essentially what we're doing is we're outsourcing our own security uh, again. And now she's doing... <laughs> What I would say is actually more scary is scaring the crud out of the American people about them being completely in charge of our economy and our pharmaceutical industry without, again, offering a solution. So, Matt, I want to throw some things out there to you. And let's use these last minute and a half here, two minutes to just discuss this. I feel like people in our audience and Republicans at large would be responding to things like this. The defense complex in the United States needs to be up, active, and only manned by American workers. We should not be using Taiwan, China, or anybody else to manufacture our chips or doing any other uh, work inside of our military complex. That needs to be sole source within the 50 states of the United States. Number two, we need to stop using Chinese slave labor to manufacture everything. We need to get this back to a discussion about our economy. Number three, we need to stop litigating, regulating, and taxing our workforce into a position where it's basically so overpriced that we have to go to places like China to be able to make goods and uh, deliver services. And then last but not least, we need to stop paying Americans not to work. So these kinds of things, okay, are things that we can actually legitimately do to stop China but they're not saying it. And I think this is why they're continuing to lose to Donald Trump. And the question is, will the American workforce stand up and show up if we, in fact, do that? You're exactly right. We need to stop depending on these, uh, these foreign powers that do not share our interests. More substance is needed by every one of these candidates if they're going to show themselves ready to lead this Republican Party in this country forward. Thanks for another great segment of America in View. We'll see you guys next week.
Thanks for listening to America in View. For more information, go to AmericaInView.com. Making their way the only way they know how. Let's go.